scriptures to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 22. One day a man awoke in the morning to find a a small puddle of water in the middle of his king-size waterbed. So in order to fix the puncture, he rolled the heavy mattress outdoors and filled it up with a little bit more water so he could locate the leak. The enormous bag of water became too much for him to keep hold of, and it started to roll down this hill, and it rolled down this hill into bushes which poked all kinds of holes into his mattress. He was fed up with the water bed, so he went and got himself a regular standard bed. The next morning he woke up and there was a small puddle of water in the middle of his regular bed and he realized that there was a leak on the drain upstairs. You can have one of those days. And then there are times in your life when God tests you. They're intentional. This morning we're going to continue to look at Abraham's life, beginning with perhaps the, the greatest test in his life, and maybe certainly in Scripture. Look with me at verse 8 in chapter 11 to get the context I'll read through verse 22. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered faithful he who promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as numerable as grains of sand on the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, brought Isaac, offered Isaac up, and he who received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, 
at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites, and gave directions concerning his bones. Father God, I ask you to breathe life into the words I'm going to say. Use them, Heavenly Father, to sculpt your people spiritually, to impact their mind and their hearts. Use your word, Lord. And I absolutely lean on the promise that it will not return void. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hallmarks are little stamps that are put on precious metal objects of silver and gold that authenticate them, that that show that they're genuine. If you've ever watched, uh, I don't know if it's still on, but that uh, antique roadshow, sometimes when they bring in these objects, you'll see the, the expert put on a little glass and he'll kind of examine this silver or gold object. And he's looking for that hallmark that proves that that object is genuine, is from where it said it was supposed to be from. In a way, that's what the author of Hebrews 11 is doing. He's giving us hallmarks of what genuine faith look like through various people. Last week, we started to mine this section of Hebrews 11 for the hallmarks of Abraham and the patriarchs. And we saw that, first of all, right out of the gate, A hallmark of faith is that it obeys, right? By faith, Abraham obeyed and left and went to the land. F.F. Bruce, if you remember, says obedience is the outward evidence of an inward faith. And that's true. Obedience is the outward evidence of true, genuine inward faith. We also observed the faith hallmark of looking forward last week. How did Abraham live in the promised land so long, not possessing it? How did he do it for so long? Well, he looked beyond his current circumstances. He was looking forward to the promise being fulfilled. Not necessarily in his lifetime, but he knew that God would do that. And it's put there in verse, I think it's 10, where he says he was looking forward to a city whose foundations, whose designer and builder is God. There are a few more hallmarks here that that I think we need to mine. There's some hallmarks of faith that we need to see in Abraham and his family. And the big one we notice is in verses 17, 18, and 19. That's the big one that we, I'm sure you left last week going, my goodness, he preached on this section and he didn't touch on the sacrifice. And so the big one that we notice here is that faith, the hallmark that we notice is that faith passes tests. True faith passes tests. If you go to the doctor to find out what you're allergic to, the doctor will prick your arm or do something like that on a part of your body with different allergens to see which one you're allergic to. In a way, this is kind of a a reverse engineering, right? If you want to find out the root cause of your itchy eyes, your runny nose, or your rashes, the solution is not necessarily at the beginning to avoid those things, but actually to expose yourself to them. In other words, to deal with your allergy, you have to be confronted with it by exposing yourself to small doses. That's kind of true in many areas of life spiritually. 
The cure for the fear of failure is not success. It's confronting your failures. The cure for rejection is is not acceptance. It's actually confronting your rejection. You've got to be exposed to those small quantities to see, to get at the root cause. And sometimes that's the reason that God places tests in our life. It's not the only reason. But sometimes that's the reason that God tests us. He knows that the cure for weak faith is not coddling, but exposing you to testing of that faith. Does that make sense? And the hallmark of true faith is that it passes those tests. In our text this morning, we see two different examples of how God tests. The first one is found in verse 11 with Sarah. You can look there. It says, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Sarah's faith was tested over time. Sarah's test was the long-haul test, right? Sarah here is put forth as an, as an example of living by faith over the long haul. We have to remember that, that Sarah, between the promise given and when Isaac was born, was about 25 years. 25 years. Think about that. Each month, hoping, trusting God in the promise. Each time she was late, hoping that this was the month, right? Year after year, after never getting pregnant, yet believing, yet continuing to have faith. She even went through menopause, yet still had faith that he who promised would be faithful. That's a long time of this ever-present promise not being fulfilled, yet Continuing to have faith. Now, I think what speaks to you and me through Sarah's example of long term, the test of her faith, or maybe better put, what we find comfort in Sarah's long term test was that she wasn't perfect, was she? She she wasn't perfect in her faith, right? Well, you remember the story. Back in Genesis, when the, faith, when the promise was given, what did, what did Sarah do? She laughed, right? And then a couple years later, she got impatient with that promise not being fulfilled, right? And she sent her maidservant Hagar in and said, you know what, I, I, can, I can help God along here, right? I can, I can use some of my own ingenuity to make this promise come true under my own power. And we see ourselves in her because we're not perfect in how we live out our faith, are we? We're just, we're just not. We get impatient and do unwise things. Like when a relationship is not happening, maybe some, some teenagers or people that are not married, when the relationship is not happening, you're tempted, you know what, I'm gonna, this, this dating a, a, only a Christian thing is just too it's too strict. I'm going to start looking outside those bounds. We're trying to create something there, aren't we? Our time tends to erode our belief in God's promises, right? Time does that. That's what Peter was, was writing about in his second letter when he says, In the last days, scoffer will say, Where is this coming, he promised? 
Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. In other words, they're saying this promise of this coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, hey, it's been a long time. And by the way, that was just a couple of years. Maybe some of us are saying that same thing in our hearts secretively. 2,000 years. Is this thing really true? Is this thing really true that I grew up in? If you grew up in a Christian household? Or is this thing really, should I really continue to walk as a Christian? Time tests faith. And sometimes we try to make it happen under our own power, just like Sarah. My mind this week was wandering to uh, the church growth movement and how we try and muster something up in, in this church growth movement that really started in the 80s that continues to have. If you remember what, what Jesus said to Peter after he confessed that he was the Christ, you remember he said, I'm going to build my church. I am going to build my church. And the gates of Haiti will not oppose it. His promise is that he will build his church, brothers and sisters, not us. And we see that universal church growth in local churches, don't we? That's how we see it. That's how it's visible. We can't see the universal church. We can only see the visible church. And when we don't see the church growth coming, when it's not there, we get impatient. We get impatient with his promise. We begin looking elsewhere. Well, it can't just be the preaching of God's word. What else can we do? I know many churches that I've I've been in contact with in the area over the years I've been here, one of the big solutions is, how do you grow a church? We need a praise band. That's the answer. Now, there's nothing wrong with a praise band at all. But if you're looking for that to grow your church, you're trying to make something happen. Or maybe a a lot of churches look for younger pastors. You know, if we get a younger pastor, it will attract young families and will grow. Well, there's nothing wrong with a young pastor. But if that's what you're banking on, you're banking on the wrong thing. You're trying to make something happen. Or flashing new programs or being culturally hip. Or we look at the practicalities of, you know what, people's attention span is going down, so we'll make the church service shorter, we'll make the sermons shorter. Now, there's nothing wrong with shorter sermons and nothing wrong with shorter services. But if you're banking on that to grow your church, you're trying to make something happen. All these are under the banner of church, church growth, trying to fulfill God's promise for him, just like Sarah. And yet our text says she considered him faithful who promised. That was the warp and wolf of her life. She was faithful. And we learn that she is stumbling in her faith. But I believe here is the key to Sarah's faith. She was stumbling forward. She stumbled forward all her life. And that's kind of descriptive of me. And maybe that's kind of descriptive of you in your faithfulness. You kind of stumble forward. Here's the great comfort for us in Sarah. During the long times of testing, and I don't know what testing long-term is going on in your life. Maybe there is some. 
you may become impatient like Sarah. You may try to do things on your own effort, to make God's promises come true your way. But those stumbles should always remind us, those times when we do that should always remind us of your frailty and my frailty. And that should turn our eyes to Christ who was perfectly faithful. That's how you live as a Christian. You realize that? That's a big key to how you live as a Christian. When you fail, you look to Christ. The way to stumble forward is to realize you cannot do it, but Christ did. To look to Christ, because he's the only one who was completely faithful throughout his whole life. I just sat back in my chair this week and thought, okay, how was Jesus faithful in his life? And maybe you could do that too right now. Think about as soon as his ministry started, he was sent out into the desert, right, to be tested three times. And he was faithful. I thought of the testing in John 6 when, when after he fed the 5,000. You remember what the people wanted to do with him? They wanted to make him king. And the, and the Bible tells us that Jesus knew their hearts and he, and he kind of hid himself from them. He, don't, don't think that he wasn't tempted right then to go, I'm accepted by all these people. This is great. There was a temptation there. Tested in Gethsemane. We all see that test, don't we? Tested to, to find another way, to think of another way to do what he was sent to do, but not by the cross. It's a temptation in Gethsemane. He was tempted by Pilate the next day. Remember when he was standing before Pilate and Pilate said, don't you realize that I have the power to let you go free? Jesus knew what was waiting for him the end of that day, the cross. Don't think that that wasn't a temptation. Or as somebody prayed today, tested to stay up on the cross when the mockers say, come down and I will believe in you. What an incredible temptation. But he was faithful and stayed up on that cross. That's amazing. Jesus was the only person to ever completely be faithful throughout his whole life. He never stumbled. You and I will. Trust him and stumble forward. But that's Sarah, kind of the testing over the long haul. But we also have another kind of test here, and that's Abraham's crucible. That was Abraham's crucible. And you see that in verses 17 and following. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham had his son, his promised son, finally, after 25 years. He had his son, and God comes to him supernaturally, and asks him to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. This is the crucible test. This is the momentary test. This is the, the, the kind of, if Sarah is the aerobic test, the long-term marathon test, this is the, the quick twitch muscle test. What are you going to do when God 
tests you in the moment. And that's the form many faith, many times faith crucibles come in, sacrifice, giving up, giving up something very important to us. Somebody mentioned in Sunday school, we, we listed some of, some of the uh, idols of our hearts. They, God, God is always going to challenge those things, to give them up. I mean, the one that's most replete in the New Testament is money. Finances. The crucible might come in the form of a financial crisis if money is dear to you. It can come in the form of an unexpected end to a relationship that's very dear to you. It can come in the form of, of, of giving up your reputation if that's what's dear to you. I remember a crucible that I was put in 20 years ago when I was pursuing ordination in another denomination and I was on the floor of Presbytery being, being theologically um, uh, tested. And, and it was really clear after about three hours of answering questions that I wasn't doing so well. So they stopped the test and said, we'll pick this up in the morning. And, I, and my reputation was on the line. What, are these, what do all these men think of me? I'm obviously stumbling through this theological exam. I came back the next day and they, and they failed me. And my reputation was stripped in front of everybody. That was a crucible for me. That was a test for me. What am I going to do? Are you going to turn around and go home? Or are you going to continue to be faithful? Sometimes the, the crucibles can come in the form of a sudden death of a loved one. That was my sister two years ago when she lost her husband in the early 50s. His early 50s. Just died. What was she going to do? Will she still think God is good? Will she still trust God? Will she still believe that God is loving and caring and kind? And brothers and sisters, those questions were probably coursing through Abraham's mind too as he's walking up the mountain. Can I still trust that God is good when he's asking me to do this? He's taking away this son of promise? So how did Abraham navigate this intense crucible? It's not the only way, but it's what we're given here in Scripture. How did he endure it? Verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. How did he navigate this? I think he had faith in the impossible. I mean, that's pretty impossible, right? Okay, I'm going to do this, and then God will raise him up from the dead. He's having faith in the impossible. And that's the hallmark of a true faith, brothers and sisters. Believing in the impossible. If you read Genesis 22, the account closely, you see that Abraham, when he's at the base of the mountain, when he and Isaac were going to start going up, he told his servant, if you remember in verse 5, the boy and I will go up and we will return. There's the evidence of that faith right there. He believed that if he followed through, God would raise Isaac from the dead. 
Abraham believed so much in God's promise through Isaac, right? That he believed in the impossible. And that is a hallmark of authentic faith. Do you know what? If you call yourself a born-again Christian, do you know what you're believing in? You're believing in basically four impossibilities. Four impossibilities. You have faith that God became man. That Jesus is God incarnate. You believe that Joseph is not the father of Jesus. You believe that, that as Luke put it, the, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. And that she was a virgin and gave birth as a virgin. That Jesus is God. That's your first impossibility you're believing. The second impossibility you're believing is that Jesus lived from birth until death a perfectly sinless life. If you call yourself a born-again Christian, you're believing this. That he didn't sin in word, thought, or deed for 33 and a half years. third impossibility you're believing is that Jesus, when he died on the cross, is an actual substitute for you. Is an actual substitute for you. You deserve that, you, you believe that you deserve to die for your sins, that you deserve to be punished for your sins, but that Jesus, in going to the cross and remaining on the cross, which is even amazing, actually paid the penalty for your sin. That he substituted himself there. And the fourth impossibility that you believe is the most, perhaps the biggest one of all, and the one that is pointed to right here in verse 19. You believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That he was resurrected. That we serve a risen Savior as we sing in that hymn. And you believe that because you believe all those things, you are saved. In other words, as Paul puts it, you go from life to life. And that faith will be tested over and over and over again on the long haul, brothers and sisters. What Those four impossibilities will be tested over and over and over again by your friends, some by your family, some by your workmates, some by culture, some by classmates. It will be tested over and over and over. And do you know what is authentic faith? Is if you hold those four impossibilities until the end. Faith passes tests. The second thing we see here is that true faith creates a conscious dissonance. Let me explain that term for a second. True faith creates a conscious dissonance. If you've ever had one of your children take up the violin and they start playing the violin for the first couple, times and they hit those notes that just don't go together and it, so, it, it sounds terrible on your ears, 
you know what dissonance is better than I do. It is this, these two sounds that don't go together. It's, it strikes you as that sounds awful. In other words, you recognize that something's out of place. Even though you may not know violin or know music, you hear it. You, you, you acknowledge it, right? Well, when a believer is living by faith, when, when following God actually sculpts your life, when, when it changes your direction in life, when it changes your decisions in life, when you're living by faith, and it will, there's a dissonance created between you and the world that you maybe don't realize at the beginning of your walk, but, but certainly early on and as you go, you start to realize, okay, I, I'm, I am called to live really differently in this world. And, and I'm, I'm not harmonizing with the world. And you have to become aware of that. I think that's what verse 13 is saying. If you look at verse 13, it says, All these died, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, comma, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. That's a hallmark of true faith. You begin more and more to realize that you're a stranger here. You begin more and more to acknowledge and become conscious of, conscious of this dissonance with the world. Does that make sense? That's why John Bunyan's work, Pilgrim's Progress, is, is so magnificent. Because it, it shows it in different areas of our life how, how different we are how pilgrimatic we are, if you will. How strange we are. We are, as the great theologian Ernie on Sesame Street said, we're not like the others. We just don't belong. Consider how different we are. We don't think like everybody else. We are to consider others better than ourselves. That's odd. We believe that there's a right and a wrong. We believe that there's a standard of truth. The truth is not relative like the culture says. There is a standard of truth. We believe that we should be more heavenly minded than earthly minded. That's just our thought life. What about how we act? Well, we're called to, when, when somebody asks us to do something... To not just do that, but to go the extra mile, right? That's odd. When we're asked to be radically generous, when somebody asks for our cloak, we're to go beyond that and give them more, our tunic. Well, that's kind of odd. We're called to be content in whatever circumstance we're in. Well, that's weird. I mean, we hear the world complaining all the time. We're to love not just our friends, but our enemies too? We're to, hold on, we're to save our virginity for the marriage bed? Well, that gets mocked. And then once we're there, we're to remain with one person our whole life? 
We don't speak like everybody else. We're, we're to speak only words that build up, according to Ephesians. We're not to gossip. We're not to swear. We're not to joke coursingly. We're, when we take a vow, as Christians, we're, we're called to keep that vow. We're to speak truth to people in love, but we're to speak truth to people, not just ignore them and talk about them behind their back. We're to admit when we're wrong. Oh, my goodness. And, and on top of that, we're to repent. We're to treasure different things. Not strength, but weakness. Not bravado, but humility. We treasure kindness above sternness. Meekness above power. Faithfulness above success. We don't look to what the world can offer, but we treasure what God offers us. We don't treasure our reputation like so many others do. We treasure God's reputation. Even the rhythm of our life is weird. Have you ever thought about that? The rhythm of our life is weird. We are called to give one day out of seven to God. We're called to glorify God in word, thought, and deed just one day in seven. You know, God is really generous. He doesn't say, give me six and I'll give you one. He says, do what you want to say with six, but just honor me with one. We're called to worship God on Sundays. One day dedicated to glorifying God. Now, I think it's a tertiary. Hear me well here. I think the primary reason for the Sabbath is to glorify God. But I think God does things for for many reasons. And a tertiary reason for that command in our life is so that we would become conscious of how different we are in this world. It creates a different rhythm in our life. It causes us to struggle consciously with this, what God says, or what the world is doing. It's very tangible in our life, brothers and sisters. It will cause you to struggle with your pilgrim status. It will begin to demand you asking the question, am I trying to harmonize with the world? Because that's such a temptation, such a temptation in our life, in our family life, and I'm sure it's a temptation in your family life too. We're so tempted to harmonize with the world in each of these above categories. We're tempted to harmonize in how we think. You know, I... Become earthly-minded. Don't, don't worry about that now. What about what you have now? We're tempted to consider ourselves better than most, aren't we? In ways we act, we're tempted to date the non-Christian. We're tempted to harmonize by, by sleeping with somebody before we're married. It's a huge temptation for a large part of our population. Christian population. We try to harmonize with the world in the way we speak. I'm going to 
when you go out and play golf on the golf course and they're telling coarse jokes. Just be one of the guys. That's my temptation. Pass on juicy tidbits of gossip. Everybody does that. If you have a really good one, we try to harmonize with the world and what we treasure. We treasure the success, the reputation. We protect our reputation. We try to harmonize with the world and the rhythm of our lives. And that's the great challenge with sports today and clubs. If you're a part of a club, they'll do things on Sundays. It's a real struggle to be consciously dissonant with the world. It's a struggle of every believer. But the hallmark of true faith is that we grow in our understanding, our acknowledgement, as the Bible puts it, that we are different. And we come to accept that. Not in a proud way. Not in a, I'm going to poke you in the, in the eye with a sharp stick with my Sunday morning. But in, in a graceful way. Realizing that you're, you're giving things up because of God. Because he calls you to live differently in this world. Donald Gray Barnhouse put it this way, we begin to realize that time is just an interlude between two eternities. Isn't that wonderful? I think of the example of John Bunyan's life. He was an example of this. He spent 12 years in jail from 1660 to 1672. He spent 12 years in jail because, because when England was going through this conformist, nonconformist revolutionary, revolution with Oliver Cromwell, you know, Cromwell gave everybody permission to, to preach, and then the monarchy was restored, and the new monarch only w- w- outlawed any preaching except for the Anglican ordained ministers. And he was brought, John Bunyan was brought before a magistrate and said, listen, you have to stop preaching to this little town in Bedford, England. You can no longer preach there. And he said, I can't do that. And so he was put in jail for three months to think about it. Three months to think about it. Comes back. The magistrate says, you got to stop or else you're going to be sentenced. And here's one of the things he's reported to say. One of them. He says, I'll stay in prison until moss grows on my eyelids rather than disobey God. He spent 12 years imprisoned. And in those 12 years, you know what book he wrote? Pilgrim's Progress. He got it. We need to get that. He was sustained by realizing that time was just a brief interlude between two eternities. And he became conscious that he was a pilgrim. And he lived it. Lastly and briefly, true faith always endures to the end. It always endures to the end. Read verse 13. All these died in faith, having, not having received the things promised. Now think about it. Abraham died not having realized any of the three big promises he was given. He was given three big promises. He's giving promise of land, giving promise of progeny, many people coming from him, 
He's giving the promise to be back in chapter 12. All men will be blessed through you. Okay? Land, nation, and the promise of the coming Messiah. All these people on earth blessed through you. That's what he was looking forward to. And Abel was looking forward to that. Enoch, who is mentioned here, was looking forward to that. Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They all look forward to the one who would come, who would crush the head of the snake. Genesis 3.15. Jesus said so in, in John 8, when he was talking with the Pharisees. He said, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing me. That was what's on Abraham's mind. Abraham and all the others died believing that the snake crusher would come. But they never saw him. They persevered to the end in faith, even having not received it. Kent Hughes wrote, death is the final test of faith. That's true. Dying still trusting in Jesus is the final hallmark of your and my faith. Jesus, when speaking to Peter, James, John, and Andrew in Mark 13, said, He who stands firm to the end will be saved. He said it. We've read it over and over again in Hebrews, in chapter 3, verse 14, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Imagine you're a sailor in the 1500s, and you hear that Christopher Columbus has just come back from this new world, and you sign up to go back on his second journey. Just seven months from returning, he sent, he, he's sailing again. And you signed on to go back, and there's nothing but blue ocean in front of you. You don't know where you're going. You cannot see your destination. You've heard about what he found, Right? But he's the only one who's ever seen it. The only one on board who has touched the other side and come back. And you're on this journey trusting what Columbus said is true. But it's a long trip across the Atlantic Ocean. And you know, rations start to get low and spoil. And water starts to go bad. And many times the wind dies down and you're just rocking back and forth. And you start to doubt. Your faith starts to get weak. How do you persevere? You look to the one who had been there and come back. You keep your eyes fixed on Columbus. And you persevere to the end. I don't want to spoil the, the grand finale of Hebrews 11, but it's found in Hebrews 12. Verse 2, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. How do we persevere to the end? By fixing our eyes on the person who went there and came back. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you will help us to endure to the end every single person in this room that calls himself a Christian over the long haul and through the intense crucibles that you will put us through. In Jesus' name, amen.